Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for your word. We're grateful that we can open your word that you preserved through the cost of many lives and as improbable historically as it is that we can read the words of Jesus Christ today. Pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, help us to reason around these things that our faith may grow. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there's the number to text questions during class. I think it's also on your handout. Those of you watching us uh, live cast, that's, there's the number there. I think you can see it right now. So please text your questions in during class. Love to answer them. We're in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a different gospel. And remember, gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. And there are four different accounts of this good news of Jesus Christ. Well, why are there four? Do they disagree? No, they don't disagree. They just come at it from a different direction, if you will. Mark followed Peter, the apostle Peter, and wrote down kind of his sermons. And when you read the gospel of Mark, that's the way it reads. It's just story, 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 story. Uh, you read Matthew, you can tell that he's one of the disciples, and he's clearly writing to fellow Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, according to prophecy. Luke followed Paul around, and Luke was a Greek, came to become a Christian. He's a physician. He wrote more of a, what we would think of as a history. When you read the gospel according to Luke, it reads a little more like a modern history. And then John, who's probably writing his gospel much later when he's an old man, is looking back on all of this and giving us a completely unique view of Jesus. What I wanted us to do in this series is to kind of forget everything you know about Jesus. Not really, but just sort of suspend everything and let's say, what can we learn about Jesus just from the gospel of Mark? Well, we've been through four chapters and we'll do two chapters each week. What have we learned so far? Mark spends no time on the birth of Jesus. He jumps right in briefly that John the Baptist came to pave the way for Jesus and then jumps right in to Jesus' ministry. Jesus began his ministry, we know this from Luke, when he was about 30 years old. Mark is telling us, based on what Peter is preaching, and everything we've studied so far, if you think about it, if you've been with us through these first two, if not, you can get them on the internet, everything is pretty much a miracle. Jesus is healing people, he's casting out demons, I mean, and he's literally healing thousands of people. He uh, is calming the wind and the waves. The last story in chapter 4 is how they're out on the uh, Sea of Galilee and Jesus literally commands nature itself. We're going to see that continue in chapters 5 and chapter 6, but the story's going to develop a little bit. So you might pause and say, wait a minute, if you read the other Gospels, they don't have this many miracles. Oh, they have plenty of miracles in them. But it seems like Peter must have been talking and preaching a lot about Jesus' healing and his miracles. Why might that be? Well, think about this. The reason Jesus did the miracles is to basically say, if you can see the power that I have over Satan and the demons, over nature, over human health, I can heal people then perhaps you can trust the words that I am saying to you. Jesus is not the only person who came claiming to be the Messiah. Now, Jesus so far hasn't claimed to be the Messiah. 
If you remember, one of the great things about the Gospel of Mark is he keeps telling people, by the way, you don't need to tell anybody I healed you. By the way, demons, be quiet. Do not tell anyone that I am the Son of God or that I am the Messiah because the time's not right. Well, that's unusual. Usually when somebody thought they were the Messiah, they announced it, they got a military following, and they tried to take over the country and kick the Romans out. And many people had done that. So it wasn't that unusual that someone might come onto the scene and say, hey, I'm the promised Messiah. Let's get some guys, let's get some AK-47s, let's get your pickup truck boys, and we're just going to go kick these Romans out of here. And I'm going to be the king, and I'm going to be the Messiah, and it's going to be just like the days of David and Solomon, the glory days. Well, they were kind of looking for that, and there were many people that claimed that. Of course, none of them had been successful. Well, Jesus comes with a completely different paradigm. He doesn't come saying, by the way, everybody grab your sword. Not at all. He's not leading an army. He comes, though, with a power that no one else has. He doesn't come with military power. He comes with power over nature and demons and human wellness. I mean, think about it. He can, we're going to see in this lesson, he's going to feed people miraculously with bread. He's healing people. So he's coming in a different way, and it's really hard to see what Jesus is doing and just dismiss him. It's not so hard to dismiss a guy who shows up with maybe a thousand troops and says, I'm going to be your Messiah. Very hard to dismiss somebody who can do what Jesus is doing. And so I think, and this is an opinion, that Peter is preaching a lot about the miracles that Jesus did to say, listen, he's making some bold claims, but they didn't just come out of the blue. Look at what this guy did. And if you don't believe me, go talk to these people. I mean, at this time, they're still alive. You can literally talk to these thousands of people who said, you know what? Jesus healed me. Jesus healed my dad. Jesus healed my brother. So Jesus is doing a lot of miracles, and we're going to see that continue in chapters 5 and 6. Well, in our last lesson, at the very end, I want you to get the geography of this. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus has so many people are crowding around Jesus that he uh, is forced to cross the Sea of Galilee. And so what he does is he goes from the populated side over to a less populated side. So on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, a lot of Jewish towns. On the eastern side, what you see over here is what's called the Decapolis. Decapolis is a Greek word, and it just means ten cities. So this was called the province of the ten cities. Scholars don't know which ten cities were the ones it was named after, but the point for us is this. It's not a Jewish area. It's basically a Greco-Roman area. The people that live there aren't Jewish people by and large. There might be a few Jews there, but by and large there are not. So he goes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which wasn't Jewish at that time. There weren't as many towns, and it's kind of a way for him to get a little bit of a break, if you will, because he's got tens of thousands of people following him wanting to be healed. Well, what's Jesus' ministry? Is he there to heal tens of thousands of people? No. He will heal a lot of people, but he's there to do what? He's there to go from village to village throughout this entire region and preach this. Repent. The kingdom of God is come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is about to arrive. That's what he's preaching. So he goes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, this is a 
this is a rabbit trail. But as long as we're here, that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is in the news right now. I'm going to show you a uh, picture, and this picture is going to show this area right there. And that, now watch on a modern map, that is the Golan Heights. So Jesus was in the Golan Heights. He basically came from this side of the Sea of Galilee to that side. The Golan Heights, up until uh, 1967, belonged to Syria. And in the 1967 Six-Day War, Syria uh, was pushed out of the Golan Heights, and Israel occupied the Golan Heights. You can't tell this on this map, but it's really interesting when you're there and you see the geography. But the west side of the Sea of Galilee is a lot lower than the east side. The east side is literally the heights, the Golan Heights. They are literally are much, much higher. In those days, they didn't have to worry about the military nature of it, but in those days it was a, quote, pagan area. It wasn't a Jewish area. And up until recently, it was Syria. You notice in the news, uh, Israel, by the way, will never willingly give back the Golan Heights. Israel as a nation is completely undefendable. I don't know if that's a word, but you get my point. You cannot defend the nation of Israel if you do not have the Golan Heights. When we were there, we talked to some people that lived right up in this area. And they were Jewish settlers, and uh, between 1947 and 1967, they were farming there, and the Syrian troops would, and snipers would sit up on the heights and shoot at the farmers as they were working. They would also shell that area, and there's a whole generation of kids that grew up in those communities, and they're called bomb shelter kids. They had 15 seconds from the time that they heard the alarm to get into the bomb shelter, and those kids spent a lot of their lives in bomb shelters. And so Israel took the Golan Heights, and then you may remember that our president has made news recently by acknowledging that the Golan Heights are Israeli territory. So that's kind of the politics and the current events, but I simply tell you that to say what you read about in the newspapers today is exactly the same place that we're going to read about in just a moment that Jesus was 2,000 years ago. So I want you to see these areas as, uh, as still being vibrant and still being the center of a lot of activity. So Jesus has moved from the west side to the east side, and that's where our story picks up. When he lands on the east side, he lands in an area that's not Jewish, and you see this really interesting story. Chapter 5 and 6, by the way, are, have bookends. The story that we're going to start with in chapter 5 and the story that ends chapter 6 are literally like a set of uh, bookends, and they're going to attach to one another. So we're going to talk about this story, then we're going to come back to it at the end. This is a very unusual story. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Nobody knows exactly where it, that is, but probably right in that area where I'm circling. It's probably right there on the eastern side, near uh, north of Hippos, probably. He said, so he went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs like a graveyard, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. 
No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me.' For Jesus had said to him, "'Come out of this man, you evil spirit.' Then Jesus asked, "'What is your name?' "'My name is Legion,' he replied, "'for we are many.' And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Well, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Well, the people tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Well, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that whole region, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed." Well, let's unpack this a little bit because there's a lot of really interesting things in here. We've talked about demons before. We've talked about the idea that demons are angels who rebelled against God with Satan. Some people think because of a verse in the book of Revelation that maybe a third of the angels in heaven went with Satan and rebelled against God. Satan said to God, look, I don't know why you're God. I want to be God. And I'm not going to serve these human beings. These human beings are going to serve me, and I will be a god. And he was cast out of heaven. He rebelled against God. And so the angels that went with him, these fallen angels, these created beings, are what we call demons. And so in this man, there are a number of these angels who are controlling this man, who are tormenting this man, who have given him this strength, and uh, this wildness, he's cutting himself, he's in agony, he's tormented, he's, he seems crazy to the people around them. When Jesus comes to them, you notice once again, the demons know who he is. What do you want with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? And Jesus typically tells them, be quiet, leave this man and stop tormenting him. Well, he told them that, and they begged him, send us into the pigs. Now, by the way, that's another clue that this is not a Jewish area because there are pigs there, and Jews didn't eat pigs, right? So I've told you this is a, more of a Greco-Roman area, and, and it very much is. Now, I'm not telling you that there wasn't a Vans pig stand somewhere in Israel. Okay, for those of you familiar with uh, the great pork barbecue there, but if you look at the archaeology of the Israelite settlements, you find tiny percentage of pig bones. In fact, so little, it's a cultural marker. 
In other words, when you go back in archaeology, especially around the time that the Israelites came into the land of Canaan or Palestine or Israel, all different names for the same place, and you look at the archaeology of that area, one of the ways you can tell these are Israelite settlements is because there are very, very few, or no, but very few pig bones there. Whereas in other settlements that are more Greco-Roman or other area, you would find a high percentage of pig bones. So it's actually a cultural and ethnic marker. So anyway, there is a huge herd of pigs. So he sends the demons into the pigs. Pigs run off the cliff. And by the way, this is one of the few places in Israel, I didn't bring a picture of this, this is one of the few places you can tell exactly where this happened. And I'll be happy to show you if you come to Israel with us. But uh, basically, there's only one place this could have happened on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So you know this happened right here. But why, by the way, this is kind of a sideline too, do the demons run the pigs off the cliff? I mean, think about it. Well, first of all, who wants to live in a pig? But secondly, it's kind of the essence of Satan, and it's kind of the essence of everyone who rebels against God. Seriously, think about this, is they thrive on destruction. I mean, think about it. They don't say this group of demons inhabited this guy, and he was wearing a three-piece suit, and he was running a big corporation. No, he's tormented. He's cutting himself. Evil tends to destroy. Sin tends to destroy us. One of the reasons God hates sin is because sin destroys us. God loves us. He doesn't want us destroyed. And so evil, sin, always destroys. It never builds up. I can't tell you that's why this happened, but that's my thought, is that it is in the nature of evil to destroy things, to kill things, and sin will kill us without Jesus Christ. So they rush into the uh, water, and all the people are afraid. Now, I want you to notice there's a thread running through this. We've seen it several times. First of all, on the way over, if we go back to this trip at the end of chapter 4, as they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee going to this place, you remember the storm, and they wake Jesus up, and they say, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Jesus, what you, what's up with this? And he goes, be still. And the whole thing is still. And what's their reaction? It doesn't say they go, oh, thank you, Jesus, appreciate that. You can go back to sleep. It says they were afraid, and they said, who is this that even commands nature? These people have the exact same reaction. They go, who is this? And they were afraid. And you're going to see the idea running all through the Gospels, but certainly through Mark, that when Jesus shows his power and who he really is, we come face to face with the holiness of God and we realize how small we are. Been teaching in Isaiah recently, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this is farther back in history, but I want to give you this point. Isaiah the prophet sees a vision of the throne room and he sees a vision of God on his throne and the angels all around him. And what does he say? Wow, that's really cool. No, he says this Oh no, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and I have seen the glory of the Lord. He's scared to death. And that's what you see happening here when you get around that power and that holiness of God. So they're afraid, and they ask him to leave. Let me pause for a question. I'll make one more point here before we move on. 
how did the demons know so much about Jesus and his identity? How do the demons know so much about Jesus and his identity? <clears throat> See, if you think about, uh, th that's a good question because the scripture only tells you so much about this. But fundamentally, if you think about what's already happened in Mark, what's already happened in the other gospels is the temptation of Jesus. So Satan comes to Jesus and he seems to know you are the Messiah. If, and he tempts him. He says, if you really are the Son of God, then do this. If you really are the Son of God, do that. And he begins to tempt him. He seems to know that God is fulfilling his plan. Does he know the plan? No, he doesn't. I don't think Satan, I don't think the demons know that the cross is where Jesus is headed. They don't appear from the text to understand God's plan of redemption, but they do understand the Messiah is coming. And so the demons, being spiritual as well as physical beings, seem to know a little bit about God's plan. They certainly know the Scriptures. I mean, Satan quotes the Scriptures to Jesus, right? So they've searched the Scriptures. They know that God has said, I will send a Messiah, I will make a new covenant and write it on your heart. So they're looking for God's plan of redemption. Satan has self-interest in this. He's like, I don't want you redeeming these people. They belong to me. I don't want you paying the mortgage on their souls. I want their souls. I want to be God. So I believe that the demons knew what people knew. They just seemed to be a little more perceptive that, hey, this guy can do things that only the Messiah could do. Good question. How, do we, how can we understand God's purpose in allowing people to be possessed by demons? That's a good question. How can we understand God's purpose in allowing people to be possessed by demons? Okay, this, there's a big answer to this question and a little answer to this question. I'm going to give you the little answer to this question because the big answer would take a whole class. And the big answer is this. Why does God let difficult things happen to people? Why does he let evil happen? Why does he let earthquakes happen? Why does he let demons happen? Why does he let people be mean to other people? That's a big question, and we've talked about it before. Let me just stick with the demons for a second. I think, I'm going to give you an opinion based on my reading of Scripture. First of all, I want to reassure you, it is my view from reading the Scripture that if you trust in Jesus Christ, the Scripture says you have the Holy Spirit inside you. Ephesians 1.13, when you believe, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Satan is not stronger than the Holy Spirit. Remember last time we saw Jesus tell the story of the strong man. He said, I cast these demons out, and you know how I can do that? It's because I already beat up Satan. In other words, could I come into this guy's house and rob his house if I didn't tie him up? In other words, Jesus is saying, I've already beaten Satan. In other words, I am the Son of God. He is a created angel, an angelic being. So Jesus has more power than Satan does. The Holy Spirit is far more powerful than any demon. I mean, that is God himself. So I do not believe, and I just want to reassure you of this, I do not believe that believers who have the Holy Spirit in them can be possessed by a demon. There's no demon that can overcome the Holy Spirit in you. There are people, however, who very much want to flirt with the occult and other things like that. And they play, I'm not talking about just necessarily devil worshipers. I'm just talking about people who go so far into sin that they become enslaved. And I believe that it is possible, it certainly was possible, that people then can come under the power of sin and evil so much that they are literally possessed by evil. 
So I think that's the way that happens. I don't think it's like, well, I was just walking to work one day and boom, here comes a demon. I tried that once at work and they didn't buy that. So I, you know, I still got in trouble. But bottom line is, you know, the old devil made me do it kind of thing. I don't buy that. I don't find that to be scriptural that, well, I'm just walking along and boom, here comes the devil, possess me. No, but I do believe you can invite that kind of thing in based on your lifestyle. And that's a very dangerous thing. Good question. So does that mean that pigs and other animals have spirits? Does that mean that animals have spirits? Animals don't have souls. In other words, they're not created in the image of God like we are and breathed breath into us. If you look at Genesis, God created all the animals. They're good creations, but they haven't got the breath of God in them. There's a difference between people and animals. So that's, I think that's part of what you're saying. If you're saying, can demons inhabit animals? Yes. Two ways I know this. One, they clearly did this on these pigs, and I had a dog. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, I'm not. This was the canine antichrist. This dog was inhabited by demons. I just know from personal experience, yes, demons can inhabit uh, animals. End of questions? <laughs> no, I have more. Did the demons die with the pigs? Did the demons die with the pigs? Great question. No one could tell you yes or no, but my opinion on that is no, they did not. Because I don't think, if you think about us, we, are, we inhabit, whether we know it or not, we inhabit more than the physical world. We have a soul. We are, quote, eternal beings. We don't experience that in a, in a direct way. We don't see into the throne room of God, other than a vision that God granted John and granted Isaiah. But we don't see the spiritual world. We know it's there. If you think about what Paul said, he said, our battle is not against really flesh and blood. It's against the spirits and the principalities and the powers in the spiritual realm. In other words, there's more going on than just people being mean to people. There's a cosmic battle here between God and those who are opposed to God. Now, it's not an equal battle. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. God will win. You read the book of Revelation, you realize God will destroy those spiritual beings, Satan and those angels. But I don't think that they can be drowned, if you will, any more than your or my soul can be killed with our body. Our bodies will die, but we will live on. So I don't think that they died with the pigs. That's just an opinion. Were the pigs used in this incident because they are unclean? Were the pigs used here because they were unclean? I don't, that's an interest, that's a really good question because if you think about this for a minute, you've got a little bit of an undercurrent of a clever little theme here that's what's going on is you're in an unclean land meaning it's not Jewish land, these are pagans, they worship all kinds of other gods. They don't worship uh, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's kind of an unclean place. You have pigs that are unclean animals. You have these demons who are in rebellion against God inhabiting this man who's about as unclean as you can get. I mean, he's inhabited by demons. I mean, it's the whole circumstance. Jesus literally sets foot into a place that is completely unholy. There's nothing of God in this place. Pagans, demons, 
pigs. The whole place is unholy, and yet watch what Jesus does. If you think about Jewish law, okay, I'm gonna, I'll try to rein this in, but this is really interesting. If you think about Jewish law, law of Moses, you could be made unclean by touching something unclean. For example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the reasons the priest walked around the guy is if he's a dead body and the priest touches him, the priest is unclean, meaning he can't serve at the temple for a week. He's got to go through these purification uh, ceremonies. There's no way to make something clean by touching it. In other words, if a clean priest touches the unclean dead body, the dead body doesn't become holy. The priest becomes unclean. But what happens with Jesus? Jesus sets foot on this soil, and he makes everything clean. He touches a leper, and what happens? He's not unclean. The leper's healed. He touches the man with the withered hand. That guy can't go into the temple because he's maimed. Does Jesus become unclean? No, he becomes healed. He sees this guy who's got all these demons, and the people show up, and what do they see? Jesus doesn't become unclean. He becomes sane again. That is just a powerful little undercurrent. That's a great question is, you see Jesus not taking on the uncleanness, which was the law of Moses. You see Jesus making everything new, making everything holy. Great question. There's an interesting little theme, if you watch, that runs all through the Gospels like that. Okay, so we were talking about people who foolishly flirt with sin and invite demons in. Yes. If someone does that, can they be freed? Yeah, okay, so I would just refer you to the whole genre of uh, demon possession movies on that. Now, the question is, is if someone invites evil into their life, I mean, and there's a dispute about this amongst Christians, and, and honestly, it's, it's a fair question, is can demons, do they have that power today? We talked about this in a prior lesson. Some people believe that Satan was bound at the cross. His powers are limited. Jesus has overcome him, if you will. And others believe, no, Jesus will overcome him at the second coming. Understand that? Scriptures don't seem to care to tell us all these little details about this. They're really interested in something else. They're not so interested in, hey, how close can I get to evil to get demon-possessed? They're way more interested in, hey, you follow Jesus and you have no issues. But the question's well put, and that is, can people be possessed today? In my opinion, yes, because I have seen things that I cannot explain any other way. Is it common? It does not appear to me to be common if indeed it occurs. And if somebody said it can't occur, I won't argue because the Scripture isn't clear. But I, it seems to be possible. Is it possible for someone then to become clean? Yes. There's no doubt that Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, is clearly greater than the power of Satan. John says in 1 John, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And that's true. It is possible. If the next question is, what kind of ritual do you have to do to cast out demons? I'm going to pass on that one, okay? <laughs> but I think that's possible. That's, that's an opinion, but I believe it is possible. Why does God tolerate demons? Why does God tolerate demons? Great question. It, that's actually part of a bigger question, and I'll just kind of give you a general answer to that question. Why does God tolerate evil? Why, does God toler Why doesn't God already punish and judge people who are evil people? Let's all pick on the, everybody's most evil person, Hitler. 
Why didn't God just smite him at the moment instead of letting this play out? You see what I'm saying? I mean, that's a good question, but it's part of that bigger question of what is God's purpose in allowing evil to happen, in playing this out? Well, Peter in the New Testament says, don't think that God is not caring in that you have this difficulty because God is actually being patient so that as many as possible can be saved. God's purpose is for us to be reconciled with him and live in eternity for him. If we have evil for a short period of time here, it appears that that still works in God's plan to save many people for eternity. If you and I look at our life, we want justice right now. God looks at eternity and says, oh, there will definitely be justice, but not right here. Justice will come here. It seems that God, that evil, even though evil doesn't want to be a part of God's plan of redemption, even evil is going to serve its purpose in God's plan of redemption. There are many ways that evil serves a purpose. And we talked about this, by the way, in the story of Job. So you might go look at that lesson because we did talk a little bit about the purpose. But let me give you a short version of that. Number one, the Bible says that you and I cannot have a fully formed faith without some amount of suffering. And I'm not saying that that is a result of necessarily evil or evil people, but God takes suffering and bends it to a good purpose. God takes evil in the world and he will set it right at the end. I think when, here's what uh, the rabbis used to say, and I believe this is true. If you and I knew what God knows and we saw what God sees, we would do what God does. In other words, when we, and this is a matter of faith, when we get to God's vantage point in eternity, we will look back and say, I understand, and you did exactly the right thing. Now, that's a matter of faith, but that's what the Scripture says is God really does know what he's doing. Evil will be punished. Evil will be judged. And yet, evil, even though Satan doesn't want to, even though evil dictators don't want to, they will all end up serving God's purpose, and they will all end up being judged for their unrighteousness. So... Probably as close as I can come to a short answer to that, but that's a great question. Last thing here, look at this. The man wants to go with Jesus. Of course he wants to go with Jesus. I mean, this is the man that just healed him. He goes, look, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, no. He says, if you really want to follow me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go tell everybody how much the Lord has done for you. I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Let's move on through. After this story, he goes back to the other side, and he's going to go back to probably Capernaum. He comes back across the Sea of Galilee, and here's what happens. When he had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, I realize when you read that, you go, where is this guy? And that's what I want you to know. You can tell exactly where he is when you read these things. And a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake, of course. Then one of the synagogue rulers, a guy named Jairus, came there, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now a large crowd followed and pressed around him. This is called a sandwich story. We have Jairus, we're going to end this story with Jairus, but in the middle, Jesus is going to do something on the way to Jairus' house. So as he's walking crowd is all around him. Remember, he can't go anywhere without these crowds of people wanting to be healed, wanting to hear what he has to teach. 
There was a woman who'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, no offense, probably a bad HMO, and spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I can be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched me? Well, his disciples are like, you've got to be kidding me. This is a loose translation, but you've got to be kidding me. Do you not see there are a thousand people around you? And then you ask, who touched me? But he kept looking around. Then the woman, knowing what had happened, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear. You notice again, she's afraid, isn't she? She's afraid because Jesus might disapprove of what she's done. She's also afraid because she is unclean. And these people don't know it, but anybody that touches her becomes ritually unclean. Now that they know it, they go, great. Now i got to go through a week's worth of purification before I can offer sacrifices again. So they're probably really ticked off because she's not supposed to be around a crowd of people. So she's afraid. And so she kneels down and she, uh, she told him the truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be free of your suffering. Jesus admires her faith, and again, he made her clean. He made her well. Well, after this little uh, distraction, he's still speaking to her, and some men came up to Jairus and said, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told Jairus, don't be afraid. Notice that again. He's afraid what? My daughter died. I'm afraid. I mean, this was what I most feared, is that my little daughter would die. He says, don't be afraid, just trust. Believe, trust, faith, all the same word. Trust is a better translation for us. You just trust me. I mean, he isn't saying just believe. He's really saying, yeah, I know they told you your daughter's dead. You just trust me. What would you think if that happened? You'd go, yeah, she's dead. You understand dead, D-E-A-D, right? And you're saying, trust me. And... That's what Jesus says. He says, trust me. That's, by the way, what he says to us as well. He says, just trust me. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. By the way, in those days, they had professional mourners. And so when somebody died, they'd rush over to your house and start wailing and weeping, and they played flutes and things like that so everybody would know, hey, Somebody just died at this house. So there is a big commotion. People are crying, etc. And he went in and he said, why all this commotion? The child's not dead. She's just asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, so he kicked them out. And he took the child's father and mother and the disciples, and he went in and he, looked, he took her by the hand and he said to her, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. These little details, by the way, are very interesting Because if you made this up, you wouldn't put these little details in. This is an eyewitness. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Because now if they found out that he could literally raise the dead, he didn't just heal people, he can raise the dead. Oh my goodness, he wouldn't be able to go anywhere. He says, let's not tell anybody about this. And then he told her to give her something to eat. And so he heals this little girl, heals the woman. And you see this running through Mark. It's Jesus' power to heal people. He didn't come to physic. By the way, everybody that he heals dies later. But the reason he heals them is to say, if I can do that, 
You can trust me when I say I can heal you for eternity. You can trust me when you see that I can raise her from the dead, that my father will raise me from the dead, and when he does, death is destroyed. Death no longer has dominion over you. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone because death no longer is the final act in our play. Jesus has overcome death. And that's what this story is about. Well, he goes on, and King Herod, and this is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is one of the kids of Herod the Great, and he's no nicer than his dad was. But he heard about this because Jesus was becoming very well known. Some people were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why he can do this. This is John the Baptist. Others said, no, he's Elijah. Why Elijah? The book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, written 400 years before, said, before the Messiah comes, I'll send Elijah to you again. They thought, whoa, maybe this guy's Elijah. Elijah did some miracles too. And so they said, maybe he's one of the prophets from long ago. But Herod, when he heard this, said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. It goes on to tell you the story, and I'm going to skip that because of time, about how John the Baptist was killed on a drunken promise. I mean, think about this. Herod Antipas, uh, John the Baptist was bold enough to go to him and say, you married your brother's wife, uh, and that's not according to the law of Moses. And he told him that to his face. It'd be like you going, well, I'm going to leave President Trump out of this. But let's just say you went to somebody really powerful and said, you know, what you're doing is not right. Well, he doesn't like that. His wife Herodias really doesn't like that because it got into the society pages. It's making her look bad. And so she says, that guy's going to die. And so her daughter dances for King Herod at a big drunken party he's having, and he says, you are such a beautiful girl. What, whatever you ask me, I'll give you. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. By the way, that's where the saying, I'll have your head on a platter comes from. And so he's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is going to be so unpopular. But he promised, and so he does, and he cuts John's head off. The only thing I want to tell you about this story is simply this. If you think about it, think about John the Baptist for a minute. This guy comes preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is coming. He is, he's bigger than Billy Graham. I mean, you need to understand, John the Baptist has thousands of people coming to him so much so that it really upset the Jewish authorities. Obviously, it upset Herod. He's like, who is this holy guy, and why is he insisting that we follow God's laws? I mean, it's so annoying. And so he's a big deal. He knows that he's paving the way for Jesus. He knows he's doing what God called him to do. He spent his whole life with no home, no clothes. I mean, he's just, he's just totally sold out to God. And how does it end? It ends this way. Because of a drunken promise to a young dancing girl, he gets thrown into prison, they haul him out one day, and they cut his head off. That is not what we would consider a successful ministry career. Just so you know, <clears throat> most megachurch pastors are not looking at that like, oh, big success. But think about it. Jesus is going to later say, there's no one who's been born that's been more faithful and greater than John the Baptist. And I simply want to make this one point. When you look at your life and you think, I don't know that I've been successful. I don't know that I've been successful for God. I could have done this. I could have been that. I could have been better. I still sin. Faithfulness. 
John the Baptist is great in the kingdom of God because he was faithful, not because it all worked out the way he wanted it to work out. And the same is true in our lives. Mother Teresa once said, I love this quote, you've probably heard me say it before, but she was asked in an interview one time, why do you take care of these dying people? Because literally everybody you care for dies. And that was her point. She said, before they die, I simply want them to know that someone cares and that Jesus loves them. And so she would take care of them and they would die. Well, she got a lot of criticism for this because she's famous. They're like, you know, you could be out on the speaking tour. You could be raising a lot of money for poor people. Instead, you're taking care of these dying people. And she said this, she said, I was called to be faithful. I was not called to be successful. I was called to be faithful. I was not called to be successful. That is as biblically a true a statement as you can get. John the Baptist was faithful. By our standards, he was not successful, but he was faithful to God. Well, after this, the apostles gathered around after Jesus had sent them out and come back to him. And so they went away to a, by boat to a solitary place. And the people that saw them leaving, though, followed after them. Well, by the time they got there and they heard him teach, it was very late. This is a remote place, the disciples said. It's late. You need to send these people away so they can go get some food somewhere. And he said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months' wages. I mean, there are 5,000 men here. There's probably 10,000-plus people here. He said, there's just no way. And he said, how many loaves do you have? He said, go and find out. And they said, well, we got five loaves, two fishes. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke it. And then he gave it to his disciples and they fed all these people. And they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. I want to say just one brief thing about this story. And it is, why is it here? Why does Jesus feed these people? He could have just said, yeah, you're right. Tell them all, you better go home now. You guys spread out. Uh, I mean, no doubt the local McDonald's can't handle 10,000 people. So you're going to have to go to several villages, right, to get food. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, he feeds them miraculously. Why does he do this? This is brilliant. Remember the Israelites in the desert 1,400 years earlier? They're coming out of Egypt. Moses is leading them across the desert. They're looking around for fast food. I mean, there's nothing. And they're like, oh, great. Thank you, Moses. You brought us out here to starve. He goes, no, you're not going to starve. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Miraculously, every morning when you get up, there's going to be manna. And they would pick it up, and it said it tasted like honey cakes. In other words, it was like bread. It was like honey, uh, honey bread. I think honey buns by hostess probably. But anyway, that's not in the text, but I pretty much think that's it. In other words, he gave them bread for 40 years every single day. That's how God took care of his people and taught them to have faith. In other words, you just need to trust that tomorrow morning there will be bread. Because if there weren't, they would die. But God took care of them. Jesus feeds them with this bread. He is saying to them, do you remember what God did before? I'm here doing it again. And Jesus is literally reenacting, if you will, the manna in the wilderness. This miracle is done for a very specific purpose, to call to mind, oh my goodness, it looks like he's replaying the Exodus. And if you've ever been in our class on the Exodus, you'll understand Jesus' ministry 
is the Exodus written on a cosmic scale? This miracle is a clever little way of saying, God gave them manna, and now I'm miraculously giving you bread. Question? Well, the question goes back to the demon stories. Yeah, I'm kind of blitzing through them. I apologize. There are a lot of great stories here. Why? We've had, I've had several sets of this question. Okay. Why does Jesus tell some of them to go tell people and others of them not to? He tells the man that's not a Jew who was demon-possessed to go tell people, and then he tells Jairus' daughter not to. Right. Good question. Why does he tell some people to go spread the good news and others not? You're going to find out in a moment why he told that the demon-possessed man to go tell people. Jesus didn't do a lot of ministry on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Those were not uh, Israelites, and yet the gospel is for everyone. In Israel, he needed to go to God's people and bring them the message. And so he was going from place to place preaching. He didn't just camp out and say, hey, we're going to have a tent meeting, bring all your sick people. He's trying to go around and preach this word. All those crowds wanting to be healed was a bit of a problem. It was not yet time for the authorities to realize this guy is the Messiah. In other words, he has things he needs to do before that time. The guy on the eastern side uh, is going to go preach, but Jesus isn't there. And you'll see what happens on that later. But it serves Jesus' purpose because he needs to fulfill certain things before he can go to the cross. So that's a great question. Okay? Last story. I want to end with the bookend. Next story, he's going to leave there. He does several things there. He's going to go back to the place he went before. Remember the demon-possessed guy? He's going to go back to the Decapolis. And he did this a lot. He went around the Sea of Galilee quite a bit, and it's a lot faster to go by boat. So this story is when he's gone back to the other side. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Let me show you where Bethsaida is. It's up here. So he's back in this general area. <clears throat> so he says, let's go ahead to Bethsaida. When he dismissed them, he went up on a mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars. And by the way, if you've ever been there, you can see across the Sea of Galilee. It's five to eight miles wide at its widest. You can see across it. And I'll just shorten this story. He's going to go walk out to them on the water. Now, you would say, that's a powerful story. Yeah, but that's not the part of this that I think is really cool. I mean, yeah, okay, walking on water is cool. <clears throat> I will say that. But that's not the part I want to focus on. So he says, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. But they had not understood about the loaves. In other words, they didn't quite get this yet, and their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, they're in this area, and they anchored there. Now, remember what happened the first time? Demon-possessed guy comes, townspeople come, ask him, leave. We are scared to death of this whole thing. we got pigs running into the ocean, like, hey, please leave. Watch what happens now. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside. They placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Now think about this for just a second. How do these people, remember where we are, 
How do they know who Jesus is? He's only been over there once and killed a bunch of pigs, right? And then he goes back. They don't follow him. They're not worshipers of God. How do they know who he is? That one guy. Think about it. What did Jesus tell that guy when he was there last time? He said, no, you can't come with me. You go out through this region and you tell people what God did for you. You know what? He did. The next time Jesus shows up here, what happens? All the people come rushing to him because of one guy's testimony. What does this guy know about Jesus? All he knows is, I was in a bad way and that guy healed me. This guy did something that's totally impossible. And now when Jesus comes back, all of these people come to him and he begins to teach them as well. All because of one faithful guy who went out and told his story. And I love to end with this because it begins with a land that doesn't care anything about Jesus. It's like, you're some Jewish guy and you killed our pigs and we want you out of here. And he comes back after this one guy has gone out through the land telling his story. And here comes everybody flocking to him. That was true then and it's still true today. And our faithfulness looks a lot like this guy. And that is, just go tell your story. I was this, and after Jesus, I am that. I was going this direction, and Jesus changed the direction of my life. I used to be this, and now I am being made into that. It's just go tell your story. I love this because look how effective that guy was. Did he know all the answers? No. Did he know the Old Testament scriptures? No, nah, probably not. All he knew was, remember the story of the guy who was the blind man? All I know is, I was blind and now I see. You need to go meet this guy. And that's our charge too, is that we need to bring people to Jesus, not through the force of our intellect, not through how smart we are, not through how persuasive we are. You just have to go tell your story. I met Jesus and everything changed. Can you do that? Okay, well then I'm expecting about 30,000 people at Easter. You've got a week and a half. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>